Let's pray before we look again at this passage. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you that in your great mercy, you have blessed us with these words that teach us how to pray to you. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we look at them, you would open our eyes to see your model, that we may pray in a way that reflects your character. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, models are interesting things. Uh, model trains or planes or ships can give us an idea of how uh, the actual thing looks like uh, in real life. Uh, a mud model helps soldiers to understand the terrain around a battlefield and the location of the enemy and their mission. A clothes model helps you to visualise how the clothes would look when you're wearing them, at least in theory. In our passage today, Jesus prays a model prayer. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. That is, it's a model to help us understand what is important and what is good to pray for as a Christian. And we can certainly pray it as a standalone prayer. And many Christians do. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a great prayer to pray. But there is nothing magical about the words. The importance is in its meaning. It is ironic that the Lord's Prayer is sadly often gabbled off by many people as a kind of magic prayer that has special power. And this was never the Lord Jesus' intention. It is the exact kind of praying that Jesus condemns in verse 7, which we saw last week, the babbling like a pagan. And in fact, it's actually a non-Christian understanding of the Lord's Prayer to do that. But understood correctly, it's a great, great prayer if prayed in a heartfelt way and with understanding. But above all, the Lord's Prayer is a model prayer. It tells us what is good to pray for and how to go about doing it. So let's have a look at the model and learn what the Lord Jesus tells us about how to pray. It starts with our Father in heaven. And so the first thing we see about this prayer is that Jesus tells us to address God in very intimate terms, familial terms. It is consistent with Romans 8, which speaks of Christians crying out, Abba, Father, or of John 1, where we see Christians are called the children of God. That is, we have a special relationship with God that is different to paganism. There is a closeness to God. He is not a, a far-off, distant deity that is barely interested in us. We are part of his family and he is super interested in us. And so we can pray to our Father in heaven who is a, has a personal relationship with every Christian. Friends, it is worth reflecting what an extraordinary privilege it is to have a family relationship with the creator of the universe, to be on such close terms with God. 
Now, I'm acutely aware that there may be some here today or listening online for whom the idea of calling God Father is a hard thing to hear. Uh, You may have been hurt by evil human fathers through neglect or abuse. And so the concept of calling God Father is understandably a repellent one. And friends, if that's you, know that God is a totally different kind of Father to the one that you have experienced, to the one that has hurt you. God is the ideal Father who loves you and cares for you the way you should have been loved and cared for by your earthly Father. He is the perfect Father. And He also aches for your hurt and your pain. And if it is, if you can't bring yourself to call God Father because of the emotional hurt, then I would say don't. For the intent of this passage is not to um, make you call Him something, but is to say that you have a family connection with the Creator of the universe, a closeness, and that is what is important here in this verse. And this family connection means that Christian prayer reflects His priorities because we're part of His family. And that's what we see in the first half of the prayer, start, which gets going in verse 9 again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the first priority of Christian prayer is a concern for the honour accorded to God's reputation. Hallowed means the same as holy, Uh, or to set apart. So it means to treat as special something. And in this case, the special thing is God's name. Or, uh, and that, by that we don't mean God's you know, G-O-D or, or Yahweh, but God's reputation. Name in that sense of the word name. So the first priority of Christian prayer is the specialness of God's reputation. That He would be accorded due honour. It is a bit like when you have an honoured guest at a function and you're concerned that they're treated as an honoured guest. You treat them that way and you ask others to treat them that way. And in a similar way, we ought to have in our prayers concern for God's reputation being honoured. That He is given due praise by ourselves and by those who are close to us. As one of the ways God is either honoured or dishonoured is by the behaviour of his people who carry his name. It is a good thing for our prayers to feature concern that our behaviour will bring honour to God's name and not dishonour. The next concern of Christian prayer is God's kingdom. Verse 10, your kingdom come. That's a great saying, isn't it? We should make a song about that. The coming of God's kingdom is another key concern of Christian prayer. And God's kingdom is His rule over the world. And in one sense, that rule is already here. God rules the universe and has no equal. And yet in another sense, God's kingdom comes more fully as more people join His kingdom through faith in Jesus. For as Christians, we cease our rejection of God's kingly rule over our lives and instead accept His kingly rule over our lives, albeit imperfectly in this life. 
and his kingdom will come in its fullest sense when Jesus returns and God will rule both openly and his rule will be acknowledged by everyone. And so our prayers ought to have a concern for the spread of the good news of Jesus, both here in Goulburn and around the world. We ought to pray that non-Christians would believe in Jesus and, uh, and that they would enter his kingdom and so the kingdom would enlarge. And we ought to pray for ministers and evangelists and mission agencies and missionaries that spread the good news of Jesus. As people believe their message, they come into God's kingdom and enlarge it. And so we ought to pray about that. And we should also echo the words of John in Revelation and pray, Come Lord Jesus. Pray longing for a return of the Lord Jesus. Longing for that time when everyone will acknowledge the kingship of God. I wonder, friends, do our prayers reflect this? Or are we too interested in the things of this world, the things that will pass away? Our prayers ought to reflect the kingdom, its spread and its consummation. Of course, if we pray your kingdom come, then the next part follows logically, doesn't it? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is bringing the kingdom home to our lives. If we desire the kingdom to come, then we desire God to obey, to be obeyed by humans just as he is by the angels in heaven. And if we can't com- because we can't compel obedience to the, God's rule, we never should try, what we're really saying here is that God should rule over us. We're admitting his rule of our lives. And we're saying as we say this, Yes, I will do your will, God. I will try to obey your commands in the Bible and live your way. And helpfully, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have this modelled for us perfectly by the Lord Jesus later on in the book of Matthew. For in Matthew 26, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's there on the night before his execution... And he knows from Isaiah 53 that he is the suffering servant who must die for the sins of the people and yet he's understandably not looking forward to it. He doesn't particularly want to die that way but three times he says to God, your will be done. Even though it meant going to the cross. There is no better example of someone obeying God's will than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's one of the most endearing things about Jesus is that he lives out this perfectly, despite the cost. And that same Lord Jesus says to us, come, follow me. Uh, Come along with me and say, your will be done. 
and follow the commands of God. Well, that is the first half of the prayer. In the second half, it switches focus from God's priorities to our needs. And there are three of them, just like there were three before. First one's in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. This is a request for our basic needs to be met each day. Bread was the staple of life in the ancient Near East, much as it is in Australia today. Though I guess we could say, give us this day our daily pie. Uh, doesn't have the same ring to it. If we were in Asia, we would certainly be saying, give us this day our daily rice, wouldn't we? Or we would say, if we were in South America or Central America, give us this day our daily maize. Um, it, it is a prayer asking God to provide the basic needs of life. And food is but the clearest example of that, and that's why it's the focus. Uh, we know from Acts 17 that God gives us life and breath and everything else. So every next breath is from Him. Uh, all our needs are from Him. But food is a great shorthand. Bread is a great shorthand of saying, give us our basic needs, please God. But do you notice that it's not asking God to provide our daily wants or our daily luxuries? It's our daily bread, our needs. That's what we're asking God for. And nor is it asking God to provide our needs for our whole life. It's actually asking God for today's bread, today's needs. And this reflects the daily struggle that there is for most people throughout the world to actually have enough to eat each day. The fact that we think that dinner is just going to happen at the end of the day today puts us in amongst the wealthiest people in the world and in human history. For most people who would read this today, they would read this and go, yes, God, provide me the, the dinner or the, the one meal of the day, perhaps, for many people. But it also reflects something else. Uh, those who know their Old Testament will know it reflects the experience of Israel in the desert when they receive manna or bread from heaven each day. And if they collected, you know, extra, guess what happened? It rotted because God was teaching them to depend on Him each day. Asking God simply and humbly every day for our needs is a great thing to do. And friends, we have learnt in the last few years that what we once thought was certainty is not necessarily certainty. Pandemics have a habit of doing that, don't they? And we don't know that that nest egg that we have built up might dissipate from that or from a war or from a stock market crash or whatever. It has just become more obvious to us in the last few years that God does provide our daily bread. He does provide our needs and we depend each day on Him. 
And so it's a great thing to do, to ask God to help us by providing our needs. Now, of course, asking God to give us our daily bread does not mean that we then sit on our hands and wait for his provision and do nothing. Uh, almost all of us will have to do some kind of work every day to earn our daily bread, be it work or study or volunteer work when we're retired usually, where we contribute somehow. But what this prayer does is that it recognises that our efforts are only successful because of God's blessing. That is, it only works because He has decreed it to work. And if that happens regularly, we ought to be praising Him more, not less. And so we pray each day that God would bless our efforts and so give us our daily needs. And then the passage shifts to talking about our biggest need in verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Our biggest need in life is forgiveness for our sins. Sin is the source of all our problems. It impairs our relationships. It hurts people and it hurts even ourselves. And above all, it causes our deaths. For we earn our deaths with our sin. And so forgiveness of our sin is our greatest need. You notice here that sin is created is, is described as creating a debt, emphasizing our need for some kind of payment for sin. And this, of course, payment has been achieved by Jesus' death on the cross. He has purchased our forgiveness with his blood by paying the penalty for our sin. And we access that forgiveness through faith in Jesus. So, friends, it's good to ask God regularly for forgiveness. It's a good thing to do at church when we gather together. It's a good thing to do at home when we're in our room praying ourselves in secret. It is both a, a good thing because it humbles us and reminds us that we have nothing to boast of because we are forgiven people. And it is wonderful because it reassures us at the same time and says that no matter what I have done, I am forgiven through Jesus and that I don't have to keep it up in order to earn my salvation. I can rest in his grace and trust him. And friends, it's also just polite, isn't it, to ask for forgiveness and not to presume upon God's grace. So in our prayers, let us regularly confess our sin and seek his forgiveness again, knowing that we are forgiven through Jesus. And then having been forgiven, we ask God to keep us from sin in verse 13. Have a look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one. This reflects the Christian concern to refrain from further sin. We aren't forgiven in order to sin as much as we like. We're forgiven and we yearn to be free of sin, to not go back to sin again. And so we ask God to help us to not sin. Now we know from elsewhere in the Bible that God doesn't tempt us, James 1.12, but he allows Satan to tempt us, Job chapter 1. And so here we ask for rescue from Satan, who is both the tempter and the accuser. He says to us, go on, and then goes, aha, once he's got you. This is a prayer for purity, for godliness, for Christ-likeness, where we ask that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds to cause us to say no to sin more each day and yes to God and His way each day. And the wonderful news is that we know that one day God will answer these prayers completely and utterly. For then we will be in heaven and be perfect like He is. Well, friends, what a model prayer this is. We see three key priorities of God. His name, His kingdom, His will. And we see three human needs. The basics, forgiveness and deliverance from sin. It's simple and it's short, but it's a profound model to follow. And yes, I'm acutely aware that we have, in one sense, not covered everything we could with this as well. But friends, let me urge us to follow the model that Jesus gives us. Let us not pray superficial prayers with worldly values. Prayers that are all about our wants and desires that have been informed by advertising and not by God's Word. Instead, let us pray with these priorities and these needs in mind. Let us pray His way as he has taught us to pray. Let us start now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you that you are a God who is not distant, but is listening eagerly to our prayers. We thank you that we have been taught this morning how to pray in a way that is true to the Lord Jesus. And we ask that our prayers would be filled with concern for your name, your reputation, your advancing kingdom, and in obedience to your will. We pray that we would humbly depend on you for the basics of life each day. And that we would seek forgiveness again and again. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to ask again and again to be delivered from sin. And we thank you.
for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. We ask all these things so that by your Holy Spirit, we may live more like our Lord Jesus who saved us. And in doing so, bring honour and glory to your name. Amen.